All right, so I'm going to confess some of my, my children's sin. Uh, my, my kids, my kids they are addicted to candy, uh, and there's nothing I can do about it. In fact, I'm their candy dealer. Like, I, I just... It's my fault. It's my fault that they're addicted to candy. I don't, I, and there's just something, I like love giving them candy, okay? Like me and Jess, we have these moments where we're just like, let's not give them candy. And then like 18 seconds later, I'm like, let's go to the store and get some candy for them. Like I just, I, I just like spoiling my kids. Like this is, I, I'm a bad parent. Like I'm like, I like to spoil you. I like you to be happy. And so I try all the time in our house because I've gotten my kids addicted to candy. I, I just... Uh, I have to have these conversations with a kid trying to explain to my kids why candy's not good for them, right? Like, it's such a hard conversation to have with a four and a five-year-old especially. So I have a four and a five-year-old and a nine-year-old. The four and a five-year-old, it's so hard to be like, hey, uh, you know know that thing that's like the best thing you've ever experienced? You can only have a little bit, right? Like, it's just so hard. They're like, what? This doesn't make sense. This is the best thing. I'm sorry. I don't, that's just how it is. I can't explain it. Like, you can only have a little bit of, of candy because it's bad for you. Why? Why, Dad? Uh, I'm, I'm not totally sure. There's these things called cavities. What's a cavity? I, I'm not sure as well. Like, I just know they make your mouth hurt. Like, I, I, we can't have, it's just, it's so hard to explain to a four and a five-year-old why this thing that's like the best thing they've ever experienced in their little lives, they can't have a lot of it. They can only have a little bit of it. And, and today, we're in chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation, and I feel like God has a similar task with humanity and with his people. He has to explain and show his children why this seemingly good thing is actually bad for them. And he uses these different image stories to do it. So if you're new here, we've been in the book of Revelation. Welcome. We will never see you again. No, uh, we've, we've been in the book of Revelation. We're going through the whole book. We're, we're a, few weeks, a few weeks away from ending the series, in fact. And we're in Revelation 17 and 18 today. And so if you're even confused about some of the ways I'm teaching it today, I would say, hey, go back, especially listen to the intro sermon. That would help. But today, God has this task of telling his children that this thing that seems good for them is actually not good for them. And he uses these different images, really these image stories, to communicate that to them. So here's what I want to do today. I actually, right up front, I don't usually do something like this, right up front, because we're going to be in chapters 17, 18, and the beginning of 19, I just want to tell you what 17 and 18 are trying to communicate. I just write up front so we all know where we're going. So then as we look at these different images and how God says these things, we can kind of apply that and think through that and understand that. And so here's what 17 and 18 of Revelation is trying to say. It's trying to say to the church in the first century that Rome itself is a beauty that you'll be tempted to join yourself to. And many will even mourn and despair Rome when she's gone. But don't join yourself to her because her violence and her arrogance are not the way of the Lamb. Okay, that's that's what it was saying in the first century. Now, I think the Bible speaks to us today. So those of us that don't live in Rome in the first century, here's what I think Revelation 17 and 18 would say. It would say this. 
empires and the ways of empires are a beauty that you'll be tempted to join yourself to. And even though many mourn the fall of their empires, don't join yourself to an empire because its ways are not the ways of the Lamb. That's what 17 and 18 is trying to say to us. That's what it was saying in the first century, and that's what it would say to us today. And I would say that up front because as we look at the imagery and how God communicates that, I just want it to be obvious to us what God is trying to say on the front end. Because we could get confused sometimes by the imagery. And so that's what, the, what chapters 17 and 18 are trying to communicate to us. And God uses these different images to communicate that. First, he has this image in 17 of, of, a, of a prostitute partnering with a beast. And then he has this image, uh, or really even I, I call it like a parable, a parable of Babylon falling and, and God's judgment on Babylon and uh, the people of Babylon mourning its fall and all the different kinds of people mourning its fall in all kinds of ways. So, so here's what we're going to do today exactly. Here's what it will look like. First, we'll be in chapter 17. We'll look at this prostitute imagery and, we hear, and we'll hear what it was communicating to them and to us. And then we're going to listen to this command at the beginning of, of chapter 18 where God says to come out of Babylon. And we'll see in chapter 18 the story of, of Babylon's judgment and all of these different kinds of people mourning Babylon. And in God's judgment of Babylon and in the people's mourning of Babylon, we're going to see the characteristics of Babylon. God's not vague about his judgment. He says very specifically, here's why I'm judging them. The people aren't vague about what they're mourning. They go, here are the characteristics of Babylon we're mourning. And that will help us to know what it means to come out of Babylon. And then we'll, we'll go into chapter 19. And we'll see that God always offers something better than any empire can offer. Okay? So that's where we're going to be today. Before we get into the imagery of Revelation 17, before we hop into it, start reading it together. Uh, I want to give a quick note about all this king imagery in Revelation 17. So I said I'd do this in this series. Sometimes I'm just going to have a little sidebar that has nothing to do with what I actually want to talk about. But because American end times preachers talk a lot about it, I feel obligated to say, hey, here's another way to look at that, okay? So uh, there's all this king imagery in Revelation 17 that we really won't deal a ton with today, but there's these like seven or eight kings that seem to refer to the Caesars, the emperors of Rome, and then there's, the, there's this talk of these ten king, kings. And over history, but especially over the last hundred years, there's been lots of speculation about who these kings are. Some people go, who were these kings to John? And I think you're on the right track if you're starting to do that. But then others kind of go, okay, who will these kings be at the very end of time? And when these things start happening, then we know we're very close to the end of time. And so they want to use these kings to predict and speculate about the very end of time. Now, no surprise... I don't think that's how we're supposed to read about these kings in Revelation 17. So here's what I think was going on. I think John, he might have been referencing something real that was going on in the Roman Empire in that day. It's unclear. We don't have enough evidence to, to know exactly what. But it seems to me that he is using biblical numbers and images and especially a reference from Daniel, the book of Daniel, something he does a lot. 
And, and other places in the Old Testament, he's kind of using these different numbers and references of numbers from other places in the Old Testament to connect to his first century listeners and say, hey, this, this Old Testament is connected to what's going on to today. So he's really, I think, again, using images and symbols pointing to things that are true and real, either about Rome in certain ways uh, or uh, about the world, reality itself. Remember, Revelation is a revealing, it's an unveiling, it's showing us what's really going on, but it's not always showing us what is literally going on, okay? Does that make sense? So that's the kings, if you use the kings in Revelation 17 to predict and speculate, I think you're reading Revelation 17 wrong, okay? Has nothing to do with my sermon, that's just maybe my evangelical baggage coming out. So let's uh, read 17, let's start, let's get into it. I'm going to read the first six verses of Revelation 17. The words will be on the screen. Here's what it says. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns." The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Okay, let's stop there for now. So, Revelation 17, we get this image of this prostitute, and she's adorned with all sorts of, like, glorious apparel. Like, she's got the best jewelry, she's got the finest clothes, and we see that she's riding this beast. Now, I think this is the beast that we heard mentioned earlier, who we learned in that sermon and in that part of the book, that that beast probably represented Nero or, or some Caesar or the Caesars in general even. John, John could have been doing a both-and thing there, but this beast probably represents Caesar, the emperor of Rome in some kind of way. So we have this prostitute riding this beast that represents the Caesar. So then the rest of Revelation 17, it basically talks about this woman and it says, everyone that encountered this prostitute commits sexual immorality with her. But in particular, we see the Roman kings and we see the, the kings of the earth around Rome committing sexual immorality with her. Now, here's what's great. Sometimes John tells us exactly what his image is. It's beautiful when he does that. And so at the end of chapter 17, the last verse, it says that that prostitute is an image, a metaphor, a symbol of that great city, which means it's Rome. If you didn't know this about Rome, Rome was not only an empire, it was a city. It started off as this great city that became an empire. So in Revelation 17, God is using this imagery and metaphor of, of sexual immorality to show how easy it has been for kings and rulers to worship the empire of Rome itself. It was tempting 
for kings and all kinds of people to worship the empire of Rome. It was alluring. It was beautiful to them. Rome was something people marveled at and were drawn to. Now, there's something else that John is doing here uh, that's not as obvious to us, but would have been so obvious to the first century readers. He's doing something really, really subversive. You see, Rome, the city, what the rulers of Rome did is they personified Rome, the city, into a goddess. They turned the city into a goddess, and they would worship this goddess, and the goddess's name was Roma. And Roma had some similar descriptions of beauty and strength and power, and it was probably the elites of Rome who would worship Roma, the personified goddess of the city of Rome. We've talked a lot about this imperial cult stuff. Often, Rome was just really taking their empire and saying, worship it and adding it to all of the religions that were in Rome. And so Roma was this this goddess that the Roman elite would worship together. And John is taking some of that imagery and he's saying, Roma, Rome is not a beautiful goddess, she's a beautiful prostitute. So John is being really subversive. Anyone that lived in Rome would have read this and went, whoa, 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 (laughs) like this is crazy, this is intense. Now, I want to say this, the, the, the prostitute imagery that's used here in Revelation 17, it can come, it can come across demeaning. Uh, and I want to point out a, a few reasons why I don't think this imagery is demeaning. If you're reading and going, man, this is demeaning towards prostitutes, I want to talk through why I don't think the language here is demeaning. I think the first thing to realize is this, is God, throughout history, when he speaks to a people... He always speaks in their language. He always speaks in in symbols and images that they would understand. Right? We see this in Jesus himself. He, God, in the flesh, he incarnates into the world. And I think the way that God speaks to the world and speaks to peoples is by using language and symbols that they can understand. And so in first century Rome, prostitutes were much more commonplace than they are in our 21st century, at least in a visible way. It was very visible. I think it was even more common than today, even though we kind of have that in an invisible sense that we don't always see here. But, and so prostitutes were a, a good image to use to communicate what God is trying to communicate to first century Roman people because their society had prostitutes all over, uh, all over it. Okay, so John using that imagery, it makes sense. Secondly, I'll say this. I think it's also just really important to note that probably and perhaps, and I think, the individual who lifted up and brought value and dignity to prostitutes more than any other person in history is Jesus. It is Jesus is part of why we began to see people as like in the world with higher value and higher dignity. He lived in a time where it was very common for the philosophers of the day to say, ah, this person has this value clearly because they were born royal and this person has less and this person has less and they would each have their own rankings as philosophers. Jesus was the only one that said everybody has equal value, dignity, and worth and the prostitutes were drawn to him because of how he loved them and cared for them. And so I I just want to say that if, 
John is not using this language to demean. But I think he is using this language to communicate something that would make a lot of sense to the people in the first century. Okay, so I, wanna, I want to now explain why I think this prostitute imagery is actually really good for what John, and God through John really, is trying to communicate. So back then, prostitutes were a temptation to use. They were a temptation for all people to use. It was very, a very common thing, and it was a temptation for everybody. And so what John is communicating is that for Christians and all humans, joining themselves to Rome was a temptation. Aligning themselves with Rome was a temptation and a very alluring temptation. That's part of what I think the imagery is doing. Saying it is very tempting to join yourself to Rome, but don't do it. I think secondly, a reason why this prostitute imagery is good is because the sin and the damage that one does to, I think, the world and to that particular person who is a prostitute when paying for the services of a prostitute is horrible. It does damage to that person. It does damage to the person paying for the services. It does damage to the world. It's horrible. The same is true when we use empires to bring pleasure into our individual lives. Prostitution was not how women were supposed to be treated, and empires are not how cities were supposed to be treated. So this is part of why I think that imagery is really good. God is saying this is a this has become something that's been twisted, something that's been used to damage others, something that's been used to hurt others, and yet it's still very alluring for you as a Christian. Don't let it allure you. Don't join yourself to, the, to Rome. Rome, the city that became an empire, humans were lured and allured and tempted by the power and beauty of Rome, and they would join Rome to get all sorts of things that benefited themselves while it hurt others. They would do all sorts of things with Rome with no regard for how it affected other people or even themselves. And so John is trying to get his readers to not be tempted by the empire of Rome and God is trying not to get us to not be tempted by the empires that we encounter and not join ourselves to those empires. Okay, so that's why I think so the imagery is good imagery to use and a helpful imagery to use. Now, I, I'll say this. Uh, I want to apply this text a little bit. I want to apply this text because I really think the Bible is something we're supposed to listen to and hear for ourselves and understand it. And so what that means is for us to think about our country... And, and ask ourselves, okay, does this apply to us in any ways? Have we joined ourselves to America in, in any ways? Americans don't love to call our country an empire. We don't love to call our country an empire. But I will say this. I've heard my whole life things like this. We're the best. We're number one. We're the most powerful nation on the planet. And I've heard that from all kinds of people, 
all types of people in America from all sorts of backgrounds who are in one sense proclaiming their love for America. We're the best. We're number one. We're the most powerful nation in the world. Rome used to say similar things. Rome the empire would say similar things. This was how kind of this love of Rome was promoted, was through similar sorts of sayings that they had as Rome. So as we apply this, I, I want to say this, I think there is a mistake in saying there is a one-for-one analogy or comparison between America and Rome. There isn't. Rome was worse, okay? Rome was worse. There's a lot to be loved about America in a healthy way. There's a mistake in just saying there's a one-for-one analogy. But we would be foolish to not think that this imagery in Revelation 17 might be trying to help us as Christians in 21st century America to discern if our country has seduced us into worshiping it and joining ourselves to it has seduced us into worshiping its ways of doing things. We'd be foolish to not say, is the imagery trying to show us that we're not that different than the kings that we see in Revelation 17? We've joined ourselves and been seduced by our country and worship it because of what it can give us. God's call to his people in that time was to not join themselves to Rome in the ways that the average citizen would. He is making that same call to us with America, I believe. It's a temptation to join ourselves to powerful countries. And God describes that as cheating on him. He says, you're cheating on me when you do that. And it hurts the world. Chapter 18, it will shift and it will kind of use this metaphor of Babylon that we've seen and talked about. And what he'll say about Babylon for his people, the command he gives Christians is to come out of Babylon. To come out of Babylon, to leave Babylon because God's judgment is coming. Now remember, Babylon is another biblical metaphor in the book of Revelation for Rome. It was another way that John referred to the the Roman Empire. But we also see biblical authors using Babylon as a trope or an example or a metaphor, however you want to put it, for any oppressive empire throughout history. So what we get in chapter 18 is God saying, come out of Babylon. And then we get this very, in chapter 18, we get this poetic reading of God's judgment of Babylon. And then these poetic laments and mournings that all kinds of people give as Babylon falls, as Babylon fails. Okay, so what this will do for us as we explore chapter 18, it will help us to see the characteristics of Babylon And then that will help us to know exactly what it means to join ourselves to to that prostitute, to join ourselves to that empire. We'll know the very characteristics we are supposed to leave, to flee, to come out, to come away from, right? It's not, when it's commanding us to come out of Babylon, it's not saying leave your empire and don't be a citizen there anymore. 
It's a metaphor God saying, hey, you're going to be living there, but you're going to be living as a kingdom citizen, not a Roman citizen. How, and, and a lot of the New Testament is wrestling even just with that idea. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a lot of chapter 18. We're going to see in God's judgments and in the mourners' mourning and lament characteristics of Babylon and we're going to look at those characteristics, and then that will help us to know what are the sorts of things we are not to join ourselves to as Christians. What is God calling us to leave, to come out of? And it's, it's we'll see from these descriptions. So turn, go ahead and turn to Revelation 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then I'm going to hop down and read verses 11 through 18. I want to read a lot of this because it actually, it's just beautiful literature. It's really beautiful how God communicates this. Chapter 18, verse 1 says this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day and death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. Now hopping down to verse 11, we see the merchants of Babylon begin to mourn because Babylon has fallen. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these waters who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? We'll stop there. Welcome, newcomers.
this is beautiful literature. The way that God shows us what's wrong with Babylon is by a parable of how those in the world would react when their Babylon falls. Remember, Babylon is a trope. John is definitely talking about Rome, but I don't, I don't even think he's necessarily predicting the fall of Rome, but he's saying when God judges, maybe he's referencing the day of the Lord when God comes back and judges all right and wrong. He might be referencing that, but I think he's telling a parable saying when Babylon falls, people will actually be sad and mourn it even though God is judging it for its murderous and evil ways. There will still be people who benefited by being citizens or merchants or whatever of Babylon that will be sad that their Babylon, that this monster that they created will be gone and not give them what they want anymore. This is beautiful literature, right? I don't think this, uh, this parable is like trying to talk about some far off event or something like that, besides maybe how God will judge every empire at the end of history. I think it's this beautiful literature where God is trying to say, this is how tied to the Babylons of the world humans are. They're so tied to that. Even when I'm judging it for its evil, even when I'm stopping it for its evil, people will mourn and be sad rather than rejoice. So here, here's what I want to do with, with this chapter is I want to, I want to see what exactly it is. When God's saying, come out of Babylon, leave Babylon, don't join yourselves to that prostitute, I want to look, what are these characteristics? Because again, I don't think God's saying, leave our countries when they have empire-like behaviors. I think he's saying, don't join yourself to those countries, don't worship those countries, and don't participate in the same sorts of behaviors as those countries and empires. He says that flat out in verses 4 and 5. And so I want to look at the characteristics exactly that we are not to participate in and join ourselves to, okay? So four characteristics of Babylon. You probably see more, but here's four. First, we see that Babylon is violent. Babylon is violent. It's all through the chapter that, it, that it's violent. When it's even talking about Babylon's judgment, it's saying give her back what she gave to the world, essentially. Verse 7, it, it says that exactly. Verse 24, I didn't read this verse, but I'm going to read it right now. This is how the chapter ends, talking about Babylon. And it says, In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. The way that Babylon is judged and what Babylon is being judged for is saying, You're violent. You're way too violent. Not only have you killed Christians, you've killed every single person on earth. Anyone that's studied Roman history knows that this is pretty accurate. Rome was wildly violent. They conquered and conquered to get more and more. They used violence to control their citizens. They used violence to proclaim who they were. And God, in Revelation 18, is condemning that violence. So for us, followers of Jesus, followers of the Lamb, following the Lamb wherever he goes, that means violence is a characteristic of Babylon and not the way of the Lamb. Don't join yourselves to violence, okay? Second, second characteristic of Babylon. Babylon is opulent. It's opulent. Babylon, I mean, chapter 18 goes at length to say Babylon is rich and luxurious, 
right? You see how opulent Babylon is all throughout, but especially in verses 12 through 14, when the merchants start saying all the things they won't be able to sell anymore. And I think the reason that list is so long is God is trying to say, look how opulent you guys are. Look how opulent Babylon is. And by the way, we know how Rome became opulent. It wasn't by good hard work. It was from military power and from economic exploitation. Read, a, read any book about the history of Rome. That's how they became so opulent, so rich, so luxurious. And in these laments and in chapter 18, Babylon's opulence is pointed to as one of its issues. Not just simply a characteristic, but one of its issues. So, church, that means opulence is the way of Babylon, not the way of the Lamb. Definitely not like this, at least. Okay, third, Babylon turns people into objects. Babylon turns people into objects. Look at verse 13. It notes that the merchants of Babylon did not just deal in material goods, but in slaves, in human lives. If you're looking for one of the best verses that condemns slavery in the Bible, here it is in verse 13. Babylon saw people as objects, not as bearers of God's image. Babylon turns people into objects and uses people for itself. So, again, we see Babylon using violence to do more and even different kinds of evil. That is not the way of the Lamb. We don't join ourselves to that. Fourth, Babylon is arrogant and self-reliant. Verse 7 has Babylon talk to herself for a minute as, as if she's a queen and that she's such a powerful queen that she's not even a widow. Trying to say, like, listen, I, <laughs> I don't experience death. The people around me don't experience death and I'll never experience death. This is God's poetic way of telling us that, that the Babylons of all time tell themselves in all kinds of ways that they don't need God. They are even so arrogant as to think that they've defeated death on their own. The way of the Lamb is a way of reliance on God. The way of Babylon is a way of self-reliance and arrogance. So, those are some of the characteristics we see of Babylon. There's probably more in there, but I think those kind of sum up a lot of the characteristics of Babylon we see. In chapter 18, which again we know is Rome specifically, but we also know because of how biblical authors use that word Babylon, it's any empire that the shoe fits. In fact, I would say it's any institution that the shoe fits. And God's command to his people is to come out of Babylon and not join ourselves to that Babylon. So, church. To apply it to today. When it comes to your participation in this country as a U.S. citizen, do you find yourself excusing its violence? Do you find yourself chasing opulence and downplaying how our consumerism affects our global neighbors? Do you see 
people as objects, a means to an end, objects for your pleasure? Do you listen to America's intoxicating message of self-reliance? If any of that is true, perhaps Babylon is closer to us in this country than we would care to admit. If If you want Revelation to be a message just for people long ago, Okay, great. If you want it to just be a message where it's just talking about maybe the last seven years of the earth or whatever, okay, great. Then just stop listening to me. But if you think that God's word in the book of Revelation is for all times and all places, then chapter 18 for us, as I read it, hits a little close to home. And I wonder if we, as American Christians, instead of coming out of Babylon, we have found ways to baptize Babylon into our faith. Right? Coming out of Babylon for us does not mean leaving America, but it does mean not joining in the ways of Babylon that pop up in America. I I, want to be clear here, too. I think it's important to note that the Babylons of the world, I do think they most often show up in powerful countries as I read scripture. But you can see Babylon in any country, you can see Babylon in any institution, you can see Babylon in any person, I think, even. And so for us, as followers of the Lamb, we are called to discern where we've let the beautiful Roma seduce us. Where we've let the beautiful Babylon seduce us. Where we've let the beautiful America seduce us. Do not participate in those characteristics of Babylon and call it good because you see some good things at the end result. That's literally what Rome was doing. Watch Gladiator. Like, they're just like, this is, that's a joke, but it's very historically inaccurate. But, but they describe Rome broadly well. Do not participate in the characteristics of Babylon. Call it good because you see some good, good things about the end result. Church, don't ignore this chapter. Don't just go, ah, that's Anthony again. Hear the word of the Lord. Read it for yourself. See what it's saying. I fear the American church has joined itself to Babylon. And by the way, that's one of the reasons young people are leaving the church in droves. They hear messages like this and they go, and then they go, my church is doing that constantly. The people I love who call themselves saints are doing that. And here's the thing, church, we're probably doing that or we're not doing it, but we need to repent from it. And if our young people see us repenting, maybe they'll stay. Come out of Babylon. Don't join yourself to Babylon. Baptize it and call it Christian. Because God has judgment for Babylon. Now, God, he is, he is way better at showing us how something's not good for us. So this is just beautiful literature. He's way better at it than I am. Like God, he takes these images and he shows us that we create these beasts and we partner them with gods of our own making and of our own creation. And then those things end up seducing us into evil. And in 17, we see that in this image of, of this prostitute partnering with this beast. And again, God says, don't join yourself to that prostitute. Come out of Babylon. And God doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just say, hey, don't partner yourself with that prostitute and come out of Babylon. He actually... In chapter 19, he escorts us into a feast. 
right? He, he's not just withholding. He, 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 escorts, he escorts us into a feast. Look at me what kind of feast God invites us to in chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. It says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. God does not want to withhold from us the candy of the world. He wants to show us that he has something much better than candy. He has something much better than you participating in an oppressive, perverted relationship with a prostitute. He has a marriage, a marriage to the Lamb. And that marriage comes with a feast. And that feast is for any and all who choose the Lamb. And it's not based on any sort of class status. God wants to bring you into a marriage to the Lamb. This is one of the central pictures in the Bible of how God wants to unite to his people. He wants to marry his people. He wants to marry, the church is called the bride of Christ. It's a metaphor, a symbol showing us the power of what God wants to do between us and him. This is part of why marriage is like so sacred to us as Christians. Some of you are, why does this like matter to you? It's because it's one of the central images that God uses to describe who he is, to describe the gospel, to describe what he's doing. Marriage is a pointer to the sort of relationship that God has with us and wants to have with us. God wants to unite himself to us in spite of the fact that we had to be called out of our Babylon's. And rescued from them. And that even took his blood on the cross to rescue us from them. Jesus the lamb marries his bride, the church. And then throws a feast for us. Many, I think, feel that the God of the Bible is like withholding. Withholding of goodness in different ways. But the way the story of history ends is with God uniting himself to his people and inviting them into a feast with him. The image in their day of like goodness and pleasure abounding together in community. God is not withholding. He wants to end history by giving himself in fullness to us. A fullness that knows no ends. Come out of Babylon, church. And come instead to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Don't be seduced by Babylon because Babylon is seductive. Wake up to what has seduced you. That you've clothed in gold and jewelry and fine clothes and baptized into the Christian faith. Wake up to that. Run from that. Repent from that. Choose the Lamb instead. He has a beautiful covenant Marriage for you with himself. And
and he has a feast for you. Let's leave Babylon behind, church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for being a good father to us. Thank you for being a good ruler. Thank you for being a good king. Thank you for being someone who shows us what's bad for us and you use images that we can understand. That we can go, okay, I know how serious this is to you. I know what this means to you. And so God, let us see the images, hear the images, understand the images for what they are, God. For those of us in the room that maybe are feeling resistant to what you're saying, I would just pray that you would soften our hearts. That you would help us to help us to hear what you're trying to say. God, help us to come out of Babylon, not join ourselves to the Babylons of all time. God, we love you and we need you for this. Please, Spirit, let us know your closeness and experience it this morning. Amen.